This is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. <coughs> Excuse me. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions in the light of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, and doctrine, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. Our first question today has to do with miracles, whether or not they are seen today, whether or not people see miracles today. Uh, this is, question is often asked in the, uh, in the, the negative, uh, you don't see miracles today. Why don't we see miracles today the way that we saw them in the Bible? And I think there were certain times where you did certainly see more miracles. But the Bible today also says, Ask, and it will be given unto you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. The Bible says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And I can understand why when you start to look into this, you find so many main teachers who will say there are no miracles today. Oftentimes, the people claiming to do miracles are taking advantage of people instead of really doing the work that God's called them to do. But there is no reason for us to believe that God will not meet people in a supernatural way and do supernatural things. In fact, I found that as you begin to talk to Christians and ask them questions about whether or not God's ever moved in their lives or, or whether or not they've ever seen something that is supernatural, it's amazing how many people will come back, sometimes a little shy, in the affirmative. Yeah, I believe I've seen God's hand. And I could tell you a couple of times in my life where I've seen God move in what would be considered to be a miraculous way. I have seen, this is anecdotal, right? Because it's not scientific, you can't go back and study it. But I've seen someone who has been diagnosed with, with lung cancer healed from lung cancer. I've seen someone say something in my life is going to take place only to see that thing take place um, when I had forgotten completely about it. I still believe that God does miracles today. I believe uh, that we call out upon his name. Now, uh, this is entangled a lot of times with whether or not you are a, continuation, a continuationist or a cessationist. A continuationist believes that the gifts of the Spirit are still operating today you're obviously going to believe in miracles. A cessationist will say, well, miracles don't happen today. Or the, gift, the gifts of the Spirit don't happen today. And some of them will say miracles don't happen today. Uh, a little while back at one of our conferences, we had a question about continuationism. And we had a cessationist that was up on the panel with us. He was a New Testament, uh, he was a New Testament uh, scholar, and he'd given a presentation on the reliability of the Bible. And when he said, I'm on the other team, I'm a cessationist, meaning that he believed the gifts of the Spirit were no longer around today, I asked him, do you still believe that God does miracles? And his response was in the affirmative. And I said, that's really what's important. It's not whether or not we believe the gifts are operating today, but whether or not we believe that if we call out on the name of God, that God hears prayers and does them. Now, God doesn't heal everyone. Miracles are rare, but God does do them. And if you still have questions about it, there's a couple of books that would be good to get. One of them is by Lee Strobel called A Case for Miracles. 
The other one is Miracles Today by Craig Keener. Um, both of them take time to document cases of healing. And you can get them in an audiobook so you can listen to them while you're driving. But if you are a person who says, I'm, I'm skeptical, and I'm a skeptical person. I don't believe that God does miracles today. And some people haven't seen anything that they would consider to be miraculous or out of the, out of the ordinary. And so they don't believe in miracles. I, I often like to start by asking the question, do you believe in the supernatural? And, it's, and, and for Christians, if God healed in the Old Testament before the Holy Spirit was given, then the gift of the Holy Spirit is given and he gives people gifts of the Spirit and then we are, we are used by him today. We see miracles happen where people get saved all the time, but the gift of healings, the gifts of miracles um, may, I believe, are still around today. But even if they're not, there's no reason for us to think that God doesn't do miracles today. And we are seeing documented miracles taking place. And this ought to give every Christian uh, a real desire, a heart to, to pray in the name of Jesus Christ to not be afraid to lay hands on people, to ask God to heal people that are sick. Uh, we always want his will. That's what Jesus prayed. In, uh, Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done three times in the garden. Paul prayed it three times um, when he said uh, that the th he prayed three times that the thorn in the flesh would be revealed and that God finally said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Not meaning I've already given you the grace to be healed like those who twist scripture would say, but that God was going to be with him in that healing. So we surrender ourselves to whatever God is, but God does still do uh, the miraculous today. And we're seeing people researching these things now. And it's funny, uh, when you begin to, to research it yourself, uh, what do people say about God doing miracles? You'll find people who will say, there's not one documented case of any miracle. And it's like, really? There's a lot of documented cases. Of, of miracles. So much so that in the case that, that I know of, where that in a biopsy, they had found cancer, lung cancer. They went in, they removed that lobe, and then they opened it up and there was no cancer there. We had laid hands on her and we had prayed for her. The doctor said, these things happen. So the doctor sees these things happen where someone has had a biopsy, they're confident enough to go in and do surgery and um, and then to have it have it not there. And again, these things are being documented. Uh, so we have a question today from Daniela. <clears throat> Daniela is the first one to give us a question. Um, it says, is a church with a woman's, uh, is a church with a woman pastor progressive? Uh, could be, could be um, Pentecostal as well, which I would not consider to be progressive at all. So oftentimes Pentecostal churches will have pastors and then they'll name the wife along with the pastor. Um, the Bible uses the term bishop to talk about someone who leads a church. And so we have in 1 Timothy and in Titus the requirements of a bishop. Um, we do see in 1 Peter chapter 5 direction towards pastoring, shepherding, what we would call a pastor today. Um, but as far as the qualifications for a shepherd um, of, uh, of, of a group of people and an elder, which we would say also that a pastor is an elder, is qualifications for someone who is male. And for that reason, we believe that the role of a man, or the role of a pastor, a spiritual authority of a church is a man. This doesn't mean 
that women can't pray or that they can't share or that they don't have anything to say. It means they're not to take that authoritative position to teach. And um, uh, for a long time, uh, the Methodist Church has ordained women and Methodist churches vary radically so that you can have some that are really connected to what would be progressive Christianity or the emergent church or the liberal church um, where the Pentecostal churches are going to be different. They, they believe that the role of a woman and the role of a man are the same. Sometimes they, they seem to uh, not be able to make a good distinction between the two. Uh, sometimes they still believe that the authority is to be a man, but the woman needs to be under an authority. Um, Paul said, I have not a woman to teach. He said, I have not a woman to teach. So some say, because he said, I, it's okay to have a woman who teaches. Um, you can have a woman who teaches women. You can have a woman who, te a woman who teaches children. And because the term pastor is used in um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm going to go ahead and pull that up. Uh, 1 Peter 5. And here uh, you have direction towards the elders. Uh, the elders, you who are among you, let me put this up for you here. Thank you, uh, Daniela, for your question. Let me go ahead and put this up on the screen. The, uh, the elders who are among you, I exhort you, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion nor willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor are being lords over those entrusted to you, being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory, which does not fade away. So that's the reason that we call people today, we call people today pastors who are elders. And so the term pastor is a, is a, a bit of a broader term. It's not a term that you find uh, deacons, bishops, elders. And uh, so you do see people uh, who will allow women to teach or to share that aren't necessarily um, from the progressive movement. Uh, and I, although you will find a lot of women leaders in the progressive movement, just because a church has a woman leader doesn't mean that they are progressive. I don't think that that is the litmus test as to whether or not they're progressive. All right. Thanks, uh, Daniela. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Pokey. Pokey says, do you see any convergence of events leading towards the end of the age? Um, yeah, so this, this, um, this word convergence comes from Matthew 24, where Jesus says, when you see all these things happening. So in Matthew 24, let me make sure I get to the right place here. In Matthew 24, uh, we see Jesus talking about the temple. Then they get together on the Mount of Olives, and there's a question about the the signs of uh, times in the end of the age. Look at what it says. This is Matthew 24, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Which is the same thing that, that we want. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and he will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So the first thing, there's going to be a lot of deceivers out in the world. Satan reveals himself as an angel of light. The Bible says, In the last days, Men will heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. Men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. And all of those are certainly happening today. He says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that, the, or the, see that you are not troubled, for these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. So wars and rumors of wars is not a sign of the end. I hear this all the time. I heard a pastor make this statement not that long ago that, it was a sign that wars and rumors of war was a sign of the end, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginning of sorrows, and that's birth pains. So that as time goes on, we're going to see these things getting worse and worse. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And the and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will arise and deceive many, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. I think we're seeing that today. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all of the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. That's the sign that's given. Now, the birth pains are an increasing of those events leading to the end, but the sign is that the kingdom is preached to all of the world. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, now we're in the middle of the tribulation period, uh, and the book of Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of the house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days and nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight might not be in winter on the Sabbath. Today still, um, the conservative, the ultra-conservative uh, Jewish Jews will still observe the Sabbath. For there will be a great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world, nor until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, these days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and do great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you. So signs and wonders are not evidence for us. People are going to do false signs and wonders. He says, I told you beforehand. Therefore, they say to you, look, he is in the desert. Go out, or look, he is in the inner room. Do not believe them. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcasses is, wherever the carcass is, their eagles shall be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. Uh, the stars will fly off from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sun, the sign of the Son of Man, will appear in the heavens, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of power and great glory and will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds of one end of the earth to the other end. So that's really interesting. I read all the way through that to come to the one spot that I wanted to find and uh, was not able and, and, and didn't come across it. And that is when you see all of these things, look up for your redemption draws nigh. So that's where the idea of convergence comes from. Uh, I see that when the Bible describes the last days, 
they are described like today. The, Daniel was told, seal up this book until the time of the end when, when men will go back and forth on the earth and knowledge will increase. Knowledge has done nothing but increase and is increasing at an incredible rate now. I do believe that we are seeing some kind of a convergence uh, for these things. I'll take time later on, Daniela, uh, to look for uh, to look for that question, or excuse me, Pokey, uh, to look for the passage where it talks about the convergence. So that's what you hear a lot of prophecy teachers talk about the convergence because it sure seems like there are a lot of things that the Bible says about the last days that are happening uh, even right now. All right, so thank you very much. Uh, Jari has a question. Good to see you, Jari. Jari says, follow up. Why does it seem like supernatural miracles happen in Pentecostal and Word of Faith circles more than they, more so than other churches. Um, you, you, your question has a an anecdotal aspect to it, meaning why does it seem like supernatural miracles happen? So this is your experience. Why does it seem like they happen in Pentecostal and Word of Faith circles? Um, I don't know that they do. Um, Word of Faith is obviously a, a heresy that is a severe heresy today. The Bible says, if anybody teaches you godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself. So they claim to, to authenticate their message by miracles that they do, but I wonder how many of them have been miracles. I've heard of faith healers that they've gone to try to find one documented miracle and haven't been able to find it. We talked about how people will say that about miracles, but yet there are documented miracles. But I don't know that there are more documented miracles in Pentecostal churches or word of faith circles. Uh, Pentecostals believe in healing. They believe in the gift of healing. They believe that God does the miraculous. And so they'll ask him. The uh, Bible says we don't have because we don't ask. Maybe like the, the um, people of Nazareth, who, who Jesus couldn't do many miracles because they didn't believe, they just didn't ask him. And maybe there are people who don't ask him. Uh, and I would, I would hate to be part of a group of Christianity which believed that God could not do miracles, that believed that, that God's not going to answer your prayers. What would be the encouragement for us to ask him? The Bible says, ask and you will find, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. So it certainly is not my experience that they have happened more in the Word of Faith churches. I would say the opposite. Um, in Pentecostal churches, um, I went to Pentecostal churches for years, um, had an event that I would consider to be supernatural, a prophecy that was given to me that came to pass when I was in the, um, when I was in the Pentecostal church. Um, I'm, the Bible says don't, don't um, despise prophecy. And, but, but, but check it. And so we want to check it. So we have a uh, follow through by Jari. Jari says, part two, um, follow up. Is it because we have science now and why we don't see as many miracles today as Jesus's day? We have science now question from a deist. Um, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a matter, Jari, of having science today because it's, because God chooses to do miracles, when God chooses to do them, and doesn't foretell us, we can't take a person in and check them out before 
and then have them prayed for and check them out afterwards. Although, in places where the gospel has been preached, there's been some studies that have been done where they have checked people um, and, and, and you can read about this. I won't give you all the details, but you can read about it in Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Miracles, which seems to take a good study. Now, science takes something into uh, a laboratory and checks it, right? And so, I don't know that we can check for miracles, but you can have doctors who are eyewitnesses who say this person had this disease, this is the disease, and now the disease is gone. And that's the, that's the kind of things that we discover. That's the kind of things that we find that, that God's been doing miracles and that people are being touched and healed. I think there were times when they were done in, in, in a greater means, when God was delivering the, the children of Israel out of Egypt. There were the plagues that happened, and then, then the, the separating of the water, the miracles in the wilderness. A lot of them took, took place then. There was also the work of the Messiah, and miracles which attested to his ministry. And then you had miracles happening during the time of the apostles that attested to them seeing Jesus, to their eyewitness account, and to the writing of Scripture. And most of the New Testament was either greatly influenced or written by um, by an apostle. Some that we don't know, like the book of Hebrews, we don't know who that was. But they did know a lot. It would be surprised, I would be surprised if they were disconnected at all. Um, we don't see as many miracles happening today in such a small place. Like the area where Jesus did most of his miracles in the Galilee was a really small place. And then we hear of miracles being done throughout the world as the church is going out into all of the world. But if we, if we looked into accounts like Craig Keener has, and Craig Keener says that he has gotten more submissions to, 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 to check out whether or not there's validity in a miracle than he can even research. There's been more of them. In his book, Miracles Today, he talks about it, that he's chosen certain ones for specific reasons. And when you start reading them, you're only getting miracles where people did have a disease. It was confirmed they had a disease. Um, some, some, something spiritual happened, and then that person uh, was healed and still has the healing today. So continues on. So Craig Keener's Miracles Today. If you are skeptical, then I would check that out. And, and I don't know whether or not I believe that miracles happen more in Pentecostal churches or Word of Faith churches. Um, I could see a lot more claims, but... I've been involved with Pentecostal churches, and I can tell you the things people say are miracles are not what we would count miracles. You can't say God gave me a parking place today and that's a miracle, or um, I, I was really down and upset, but, but God lifted me up and now it's a miracle. Well, yeah, okay, great, that's great. I think God does all those all kinds of things. But when we're talking about miracles like we're done, like when I think it was Eutychus that fell out of the window and Paul went and raised him from the dead. Now, there's a, there's a miracle. Um, when Peter and John go into the temple and there's a man lame from birth and they say, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And there are miracles that happen that way today. All right? Um, and I, I, I don't think it's because of science. I think it is, some have tried to make the case that God does more miraculous things where they don't have science. They don't have such a belief in science. And maybe 
yes, we could say miracles are not going to happen if you don't believe. So if people are growing in unbelief and more people are not believing, then we're not seeing miracles happen. However, there are, are again, um, documented miracles. And uh, those two books that I gave you, A Case for Christ and Craig Keener's uh, Miracles Today are, are books along those lines that can help you. All right. So thank you very much. Uh, we have a question from Psych Man. Psych Man, good to see you. Psych Man says, can you make an argument for one saved, always saved, please? Leaving the 99 for one doesn't work for me. What else is there? Thanks. May God bless you. All right, making a case for the once saved, always saved. Um, <laughs> I might be a, um, I'm going to, if I were going to make that case, I would, I would say, first of all, that when you come to Christ, uh, you know, I don't even, I don't even like that argument. Um, okay, so there are passages that tell us that you cannot be separated from the love of God, and we understand that. And I think sometimes those are a little bit misused. Um, there are passages that tell someone that they've gotten salvation, and um, I'm just, unfortunately, psych man, not going to be able to make a great case on the top of my head for, for once saved, always saved. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I don't worry about that particular aspect of whether or not one person once saved is always saved. Because the argument is a mute argument to me. Because if someone is following Jesus and then walks away and begins obviously not following Jesus, begins to be an atheist or say they're not no longer following Christ, then those who believe in once saved, always saved are going to say, that they were never really saved. And those who believe in once saved, always saved, or those who believe you can lose your salvation or leave it, they're going to say, well, they obviously left their salvation. There are a lot of passages in the Bible that are meant to give us assurance. That I have assurance that I'm in Christ and, and he's holding on to me. I'm kept by him in faith. And it may very well be that the best argument for it is that they both work together and it may be possible to be able to lose, leave Christ, walk away from him, but it would be very, very rare and for very, very specific cases. And that's why I always say, psych man, I lean towards um, once saved, always saved. I haven't ever, I, haven't, I don't know that I've ever made a defense for it at all. Um, and... Um, I'm not sure I can make a defense either for losing your salvation. Uh, I do know that there are a lot of warnings in the Bible, especially in the book of Hebrews. There are warnings, and warnings are there for a reason. Um, so I, um, I'm just not emphatic, and I'm sorry that that kind of takes that, that middle ground, but I'm not. I'm just not emphatic when it comes to this topic, uh, whether or not someone can could leave their salvation, could lose their salvation. All right, psych man? Sorry, I can't help you there. Um, maybe we'll take a look at it in more detail. We've got some time to prepare and, and take a look at a few passages. Um, Rakiah says, in 1 Samuel 140, David picks up five total stones, one killing Goliath and the other killed four giants referenced in 2 Samuel 21, 22. 
same event. Um, are the others killed? Let's see. One for Goliath. Are, are the others killed? Four giants referred to. Um, so let's uh, let me take a look at. Let's start with Second Samuel. We know that David in in First Samuel that David stops and picks up five stones. Now, were there four brothers of Goliath? Let's just take a look at Second Samuel here. I think this is a completely different thing, but I think that Goliath had brothers that were giants as well. Second Samuel twenty one through twenty two. It says here, I'm going to put this up for you. And Abner said to them, turn aside to the right or to the left and hold one of the young men. Take his armor for yourself. Um, am I in the right place? Maybe I'm not. Hold on. Hold on. Let me look again. 2 Samuel 21, 22. Yeah, I'm not even in the right place. 2 Samuel 21, 22. Okay. So here it says these... Um, Let's see if we can go back one here. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each of his feet, 24 in number, and he was also born to the giant. So when he defiled Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shema, David's brother, killed him. These four were born uh, to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David, and by the hands of his servants. So, yeah, it looks like there was a total of five. Um, I've heard this before, that that David, you know, by faith was picking up a stone for each of them, but we just don't have any evidence of it. So, sometimes we hear of those things and it makes like a good story, could be a good account. Maybe, I mean, you know, if you have a gun, you're not you're just gonna have one bullet. So maybe he was just getting enough stones. Maybe God was saying something that would connect later on to these four who were killed along with Goliath um, that also killed the, the giants there. All right, Rakaya, thank you very much. Uh, sorry again not to be a whole lot of help. Uh, Steve Wolkowski says, question, I really like how you use the word trust to describe John 3.16. Can you dive a bit on in on trusting God? Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so when, when you become a Christian, before you become a Christian, you're living for yourself. You're trying to figure things out. You're trying to, to make decisions on your own. And then God convicts you. And God reveals to you that you have sin in your life. And now you learn that you have to believe on him, that you've got to follow him, that, that you've got to become a Christian. And so you surrender your life to him, and when you do, there's a radical changes that start to happen. You begin to want to do what God wants you to do. But as far as trusting in Christ, um, the Bible says in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Seek God instead of leaning on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. So I, I, I think that's part of it. But what it really comes down to is that I start living for Christ now. That before I was a Christian, I was living on my own. I was doing my own things. I was doing my own desires. I was tending to the flesh rather than to the things of the Spirit. 
And once I became a Christian, I began to want to do the things God wanted me to do and began to seek out the things that God wanted for me. All right. So thank you, Steve. I, I appreciate that question. Um, Dry has a question, part three. All right. Part three, future question. And if there are so many false teachers, women teaching in churches, word of faith movement, etc., why doesn't God stop them in this separation of the wheat and the tares? Well, I think that eventually he will. First of all, let's hope that they're genuine believers because there are going to be differences that we're going to believe. But I'm not willing to say that anyone who's got a woman teacher at their church is a tear. Uh, the Word of Faith movement is an extreme movement. It teaches a lot of false doctrine. Does it mean that there's nobody saved in the Word of Faith movement? I wouldn't go that far. Um, I don't want to become, I don't want to become a judge. I want to judge what people say for sure. I want to judge the teachings against what the Bible has to say for sure. Do I want to judge the individuals? Not so much. I want to leave that up to God. But I don't think that we've seen the separation of the wheat and the tares yet. That's still coming. There will be a division when God, when God divides the wheat from the tares. I think there's a lot of false teaching out there today, and we're told, be careful that no one deceives you. So how do we deal with the false teaching that's out there? We're supposed to be careful that we are not deceived. That's our responsibility. God will take out the false teachers, but we've been given the word of God. We've been given the truth. We've been given an example in the Bereans to search the scripture daily to find out whether or not those things are so. And so we don't expect, Jari, for God to remove false teachers. We expect rather that we would be good at understanding, rightly dividing the word of God and not being taken advantage of by those who are false teachers. So Jesus said again in Matthew 24, um, in the last days, beware. Many will come saying to my name that they are, they are me. There are a lot of false teachers are going to go out. A lot of wolves in, uh, in sheep's clothing. And so we have to be aware. But it's our responsibility to make sure that we are not deceived. God will deal with false teachers in his time. And I, I, and I think that the judgment for a false teacher, especially someone who is not deceived in it, but is deceiving, who knows it's not true, and is teaching it, any, it anyway, is going to be severe. All right, so um, we have a question from Albert. Albert uh, says, part one, recently read of the four living creatures in Revelation. May my symbolism four aspects of Jesus as described in the four gospels. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews, represented as the lion. Um, yeah, so I've heard this before. Uh, the four living creatures, let me go to the second part here of your question, if I can find it. Um, Alex, and we'll have to go back up. Um, part two, oh, Albert, sorry, part two. Okay, um, part two. Mark, he is the humble servant representing the ox, the beast of burden. In Luke, he is the son of man represented by the man's face. In John, he is a resurrected symbol um, by an eagle. Thoughts? Uh, I, I think that these kind of things are interesting. It's like, could there be a connection between them? You've got the four Gospels, and you can kind of make them fit into these four different creatures. 
that are in heaven flying around with six wings, right? And they're they're obviously throne room creatures. Um, could they be talking about? Could it be talking about God ruling and reigning? God lifting his people up and soaring them like an eagle? Uh, the face of a man, Jesus became a man. I, I think there could be a lot of different ways to start breaking this down and look at it. Um, like I said, I've heard that before. I just don't put a lot of stock in it because I don't see the clear connection between the two. Are there things that could just be coincidence? Sure. Are there things that God means to see bigger pictures on or to consider those things? Is it wrong to have thoughts along these lines and to look into them? I don't think so. But what's the connection between the angels that are the throne room angels of God that fly around heaven and cry out that God is holy, that do his bidding, and the Gospels? And is God trying to to, to make an aspect um, for it. I think humble servant, an ox, might be a stretch. <laughs> uh, an ox was very, uh, known to be very, very powerful. And bullfighting, um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if an ox is represented as a humble servant and as, um, John has resurrected, he's resurrected symbolizing the eagle. Yeah, eagle could be a stretch as well. So I'm just telling you what I, what I think as I look at it. Now, remember again, Albert, I'm a lot more skeptical than a lot of other guys. A lot of other guys will make connections and see them. And I think you could say, these are interesting. Um, I just don't see a strong connection between them or what that would actually be saying to us or what kind of direction uh, we would be given. Matthew, obviously, is written to the Jews. And so he ties in a lot of the Old Testament to it. He's tying it back in. Theopolis, if Theopolis is a man, is Greek. At least it's written for the Greek world to where you see the humanity of Jesus inside of the book of Luke more than you do the, the Son of God aspect in the book of Matthew and fulfilling of the Old Testament. So you see that a lot differently. Um, Mark... Um, which um, you said, Mark, he is the humble servant. Um, in Luke, uh, he sees the son of man, you see his humanity. And so I think that's true. Um, in Mark, you see him as a servant. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I see a loose connection, but I just don't know if I'd be able to make all of those um, connections. All right. So uh, thank you very much, Albert. I appreciate your questions. Always good. Um, we have a question from Michelle. Michelle says, Robert P.S., uh, any good Christian books or authors you highly recommend us reading? God bless you. Ah, well, yeah, thank you very much. I can give you some thoughts about what I think would be really good books for you to read. Um, if you want a biography, one of my favorite biographies is A Passion for Souls. It's about D.L. Moody. And it's a long read. You can you can get the audio version and listen to it as well. But it is inspiring when you see the way that God used a man who surrendered himself to God and always felt inadequate 
and that God used them in just such incredible and powerful ways. And you run into a lot of other people when you're studying the life of D.L. Moody. Um, F.B. Meyer and Charles Spurgeon, um, A.W. Tozer or R.A. Torrey. Uh, you run into a lot of these guys when you're looking at them. So it can be a very inspiring uh, book to read. Uh, I think if you're looking, depending on what exactly you're looking for right now, um, I like Elisa Childers' book, Another Gospel, because it deals with uh, progressive Christianity. And she goes through each of the aspects that they attack. And you're going to get the reliability of the Bible. It's a lot like Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Faith, um, but maybe modernized a little bit. I, I like the way that she comes at things, and I think it's very good. Um, another really good book to read is um, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by um, Dr. Frank Turek and Norman Geisler. I, that's, it's, it's, it's a great book to get, your, to get your feet wet on apologetics and being able to defend a belief in God and the reliability of Scripture, and there's there's just a lot of really really good stuff um, that is inside of um, of that book. Um, I I I'm reading one right now by Bart Ehrman, which it's really hard for me to talk about Bart Ehrman when I'm when I'm listening to a book by him. But I'm listening to a book by him now because I get so frustrated at some of the things that he says. I think it's a pop level book. I think if you get into his and, and he's a critic, obviously. He's not a Christian. Um, and that's the reason that I read. I try to read outside of where I'm at, so I'm not only hearing things from my echo chamber, but hearing what other people are saying as well. So there's a few suggestions for you of, um, of good books that are out there. A lot of other really good books uh, that you can read. I've, I've got quite a few waiting uh, for me to be able to uh, begin to read or begin to listen to. All right? So thank you very much. Uh, we have a question from Brandon. Brandon says, are Calvary Chapel's reformed churches? No, they are, they are not reformed. Now here's where we, we come into, we, we just got to come into definitions. So what is the definition of a reformed church? Or, or let's put it this way. When someone says, we are a reformed church, what do they mean? Well, they, yeah, they're going to connect themselves to the Reformation. They're going to connect themselves to Martin Luther and to John Calvin. They're going to make those connections. And that's when the Catholic Church had gotten involved in so many things that Martin Luther tried to change it from inside first and then ended up fleeing and starting Protestantism. And we believe, and we are Protestants. But when someone says they're Reformed today, uh, Brandon, what they really mean when they're, they said they're saying that they're reformed is that they're basically Calvinists and they believe that God unilaterally chose somebody before the foundations of the world to be saved, that you can't be saved if um, you have not been chosen by him and God did that unilaterally. In other words, God chose the people who are going to be saved. Whoever believes on him will have eternal life. So if you believe on him, you're going to be saved. But that's not what someone who was reformed would believe and, and, and would teach. Also, reformed churches can be involved in um, determinism, believing that God determines everything, and also in rejecting the nation of Israel as still being God's people. Even though in the book of, of Joel, God says in the very last days 
that they are his people. And they believe that the church replaced uh, the, uh, the, the nation of Israel. And so Calvary chapels are certainly not reformed. I, I, w- I would say that you're not going to find one Calvary chapel church that's reformed. Uh, there may be some pastors that might lean into some aspects of Calvinism, um, but I think that, I, but, but I don't think that that's the case. Very, not very much anyway. So yeah, Calvary chapels are definitely not reformed churches. All right. Reformed churches are going to be um, your, your PCA, Presbyterian Church of America. Um, I'm not going to go in through and name every denomination that would be reformed. Genuine Christians, we're not saying that they don't love Jesus. They believe in him. They trust in him. Uh, these issues are in-house issues. They are very important in-house issues, but they are in-house issues. So, K. Fox, thank you for your question, uh, Brandon. K. Fox says, um, question, miracles happening in our lives hit you, but um hit you but miss um nicu tried to take me to court to take my son off of a ventilator they are miracles yeah so god does some god intervenes um it's anecdotal we've experienced in our own life we would say that it's a miracle that god moved in their life and 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 did the work now whether or not anybody would be able to come in and verify the the ministry, I mean, on the miracle, I, I I don't know, but hey, for us, when we're seeking God and God meets us where we are, then that's miraculous. God's doing the miraculous. Can that be tested? Maybe not, but God's still doing the miraculous, and that's anecdotal in our part. Now, other people can say that doesn't mean they they mean anything. Other people can say, well, I'm a Mormon and I'm seeing miracles, or I'm a uh, Jehovah Witness, or I'm a, you know, uh, is, I'm in Islam and I'm seeing miracles. Miracles can be lying wonders, right? Miracles were around in the days of Jesus to attest to his Messiahship. And during the time of the apostles to attest to them being called by God to give us the written word of God. And miracles take place now as God sees fit, as God sees fit, as God wills, and um, some of them can be tested and some of them can't, okay? So um, we have another question from Pokey. Pokey says, King Og's bed was made of iron and measured 13.5 feet and six feet wide. Um, Deuteronomy, would this mean Og was 12 or 13 feet tall? Yeah, I don't know that we can measure him by the size of his bed. Uh, Right? No way to do that. So we don't have anything that would tell us he had a foot below his feet and he had a foot above his head or, you know, you know, the average person only needs six inches below their feet and six inches above their head. So, you know, the average bed today is seven feet long and you sleep someone six feet comfortably. I mean, those kind of, he's just not going to be able to tell. There's no way. Um, we are told by the cubit how tall Goliath is and he comes up to about somewhere around nine feet tall depending on, on how, how long a cubit would be for you. Um, I would doubt that he would be 13 and a half feet tall or, or that he would be, yeah, 13 and a half feet tall. So was made of iron measured 13 and a half feet long, six inches. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, 
I would say no, Pokey. That that would be my thing. I think that Og maybe would be ten feet to nine and a half to ten feet tall, and um, the tallest man to have ever lived that we've documented is is nine feet tall. I think nine feet two inches, which is Shaq was seven feet tall, seven feet two, seven yeah, seven foot two. At least that's what they said, seven two. And um, you, you know, you stand next to him, and you like feel like I'm a kid. So imagine someone who's nine feet tall. And when you see pictures of, I think it's Robert, I can't remember his last name. Um, yeah, when you see pictures of him next to people, he looks like he's standing next to kids when he's standing next to six foot tall people. So it's really tall. Now, there's all kinds of news on skeletons that have been found that are 14 feet tall. And any of these things that, you, that I see just as clickbait and... You know, you, you really want to look at something that's more evidence-based. Um, okay, so we have a question from Stephen, uh, Stephen and Katie. She says, raised Catholic here, wondering about the seven sacraments. Is it the same for non-Catholics? It's not. The, the sacraments are, have been in the past ways in which the church says, you keep the sacraments and you can be saved. There are certain sacraments you have to keep. This results in a work-based salvation. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, I think it's 8 and 9, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we don't see any of the list of the sacraments being given in the Bible. Instead, Stephen and Katie, we see them um, in tradition and brought up in tradition. And we see that there's certain things that the Catholic has done traditionally that they've had to go back on. And that the difference between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church is that we believe in sola scriptura, only the Bible, and Catholics put tradition or the, the, the word of the Pope up as high as scripture, and to me that's problematic. I think a Catholic has everything they need to be able to be saved, they believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the resurrection. They can call out upon the name of God. They can invite him into their life. They can begin to live for him. And if you are saved by Christ, by his, his work on the cross, and you've received and trusted in him, you believed, trusted in him, then you can be saved. And I believe there are many Catholics that have a genuine relationship with Christ. But if they believe it's by the works of the sacraments that they've gotten saved, then... There, it's problematic. And, and I do know some that are like, well, I'm going to kind of keep both of these. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite Christ into my life, but I'm going to keep them as kind of a way uh, to, to, make, to make sure I got all my bases covered. And that's problematic. You believe in Christ. The Bible simply says that you believe in Christ and you are saved. Those who call out on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, no, they are not the same uh, for us. Um, the whole idea of a sacrament is different for the Catholic Church than it is for Christians. Um, we believe that God called us to take communion, and we believe that God called us to be baptized. Uh, we believe that God called us to go to church on a regular basis. Don't forsake the gathering together of the saints. So these are the things that we as Christians are supposed to do. They are not works. They are things that we do because we've committed our lives to Christ and we want to follow him and live for him. And um, we do have the evidence of God saving us, which is doing the things that God's called us to do. 
So we have an, another question from Kay. Kay says, um, aren't, aren't miracles today, uh, aren't miracles happening every day with our lives? I mean life, death, miracles. I have experienced many by a medic, normal, another can be near, miss, accident, and crashes. Yeah. So again, these are unmeasurable. So, and you're going to have all kinds of people that are going to attest to these kind of things, right? You're going to have people who are atheists who are going to say something happened to me that was, you know, um, maybe on a lot, on a lot less um, scale. Uh, Christians have to say to look for God everywhere in their lives. You know, I needed five steaks for dinner. The butcher had five steaks left. Thank God he got us enough steaks for dinner. Now, is that really God? M maybe. I don't know why God would do that, but God's God. I can't tell him not to. But I don't think that that kind of a miracle is going to impress anybody. Um, maybe it's God just doing something in your life. So yeah, there are miracles that are happening all of the time. And God's doing miracles. And this is why when... Um, at one of our conferences, we had the guy who was a cessationist believe the gifts of the Spirit had stopped. I said, do you believe God can still touch people's lives, answer their prayers, move in their lives today in a miraculous way? And he said, yes. I said, then really, we aren't that far apart from each other. I believe in the gifts, but you don't, but you still believe that God answers prayers and moves and does miracles. Now, that's not to say that there aren't Christians who don't believe there are many miracles today, because there are those who will deny that there are any miracles today. Although, uh, we're, we're, like I said, um, Lee Strobel's book and Craig Keener's book speaks really against that. Uh, we have a question from Jeffrey Bucquet. What would be the difference between a miracle and a blessing? Blessing is God's favor spoken over us, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Um, constantly working in God's best. Miracles prayed for from one crisis to another. So what would be the difference between a miracle and a blessing? Um, that fact that I have been saved is a miracle. That's going to be revealed one day when I enter into heaven. Does that, are people going to believe in that miracle of my transformation? I don't think so. So, yeah, I mean, we're living all kinds of blessings and God is intervening. And all of those times of God intervening would be miracles. Um, what we're, when we're talking about when someone says, why aren't there miracles today like there were in the Bible? They're meaning, why aren't we seeing people who are blind healed? Why aren't we seeing the lame walking? Why aren't we seeing um, the, like the woman who was bent over for 18 years? Why aren't we seeing her, people like her straightened up? These are the things that we're looking at for miracles. Not whether or not Peter was able to say Jesus was the Christ because God had revealed it to him. That wasn't the miracle they were looking at. So when you're going to be reading books like Lee Strobel's A Case for Miracles and um, Craig Keener's Miracles Today, you're not going to be looking at miracles like, you know, I was, I was praying, I had an inner struggle, and I prayed for it, and God gave me, a, I, 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 now I, I was able to stop my hatred of that individual. Now, did God intervene? Was that a miracle? Yes. Do we put it in the category of the miracles Jesus did when he was here, or the apostles did, or what God may do when he takes someone who's in a hospital bed and brings them out of the hospital bed when someone is praying for them, uh, that, that the doctors end up going, I don't know why, they're healing. It shouldn't have happened, but it did happen. So I would see them as being, as being different. 
Okay. So yeah, God blessing our lives would be is is a miraculous thing to us, um, but it's not anywhere near on the same level as the miracles of Jesus, right? There's got to be a way to make a distinction between those minor miracles that we see happening in our lives. And who wants to call them minor? Sometimes they're tra life, tra life transforming, but they are unattestable and attestable miracles that we see. And there's reasons why God may do things in your life that are miraculous, but can't be proven, but God may do something to someone uh, that might heal them. And it may be and it may be supernatural in order for God to be able to reveal that to them. Okay? So, um, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate your question. And let's see what else we got here. Uh, Paul McGuire says, um, Paul McGuire says, if I eat my steak rare, and when I do, I see its lifeblood on my plate, did I sin? Or is the New Testament times, it does it no longer matter? So I understand, Paul, why you would be asking this question. Um, in Acts chapter 15, when they have the first council, the first gathering together of believers to determine whether or not they're going to make the disciples, um, make the, the, the Gentile Christians have to become Jewish. Are we going to allow them just to serve God? Or are they going to have to become Jewish? There are a lot of people going around teaching people that they had to become uh, Jewish if they were going to believe. And at the decree, they came back and they said, we're not going to lay, we're not going to make them get circumcised. We're not going to lay anything on them, but we want a few things of them. Um, so let me read you, let me get you the letter here. This is the letter that they sent Um they wrote uh, this letter to them. This is the letter they sent to the Gentiles. Um, the apostles, the elders, and brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Sicily, greetings. Uh, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out uh, from us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised to keep the law, to whom we give no such commandments. So they don't give any commandments like that. It seems good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for, their, the, for the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Cilicus, who we also report the same things by the word of the mouth. For it seems good to the Holy Spirit, to us, to lay upon you no great burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep from these things, you will do well. So, um, the sexual immorality here, I mean, yeah, I mean, we see that all over the New Testament. Th um, things strangled, instead of being, um, instead of being, their, the throats cut and their blood being drained from them and things sacrificed to idols. Now, a little bit later on in the New Testament, you get, sorry, a little bit later on in the New Testament, you get Paul saying, just don't ask. If, if, if someone says this has been offered to an idol, 
We know that idols are nothing, it says. If anything, there's a demonic power that's behind them, but we're not eating, we're not somehow by eating a steak that had been committed to an idol, because in a lot of their steaks that they sold in the markets were dedicated idols. And he's basically saying, when you go to buy it, don't say, is this been dedicated to an idol? You just buy it. And you just trust in God and, and you eat it. Um, things strangled. Um, may very well have been instead of being like a law, because it's an Old Testament law, right? And so the Gentiles are living for Christ now, and they are now Judeo-Christian, which is really a hard thing for them to really come to. And so living around people who are Jewish, in order to not be an offense to them, not eating things strangled or, you know, by eating with the blood in it would be a bad thing. I don't find anything in the New Testament that would say that we are not to do that. Now, you say, but they, they wrote it down. They made the letter. They just, yes, and that's descriptive. It's telling us what they said. God doesn't say, well, I agreed with that. A little bit later on, we find that Paul boils things down to, to sexual immorality and not these other issues that had to do with the law. So, um, if you're eating a rare steak and you see, you know, blood on your plate from the steak, uh, you are not bound not to eat that steak rare, okay? So, I'm glad to tell you, Paul, that you can still eat that steak rare, that you can still uh, really enjoy it, all right? So, um, good to see you guys. Let me see. Uh, we um, have a teaching a little bit later on tonight. Um, what do you know who has the gift of, how do you know who has the gift of healing? Um, yeah, so we've got some questions that are on here. We'll look at it a little bit later on. Sorry, um, Rod, it looks like yours was the only one we didn't bring in. Let me just bring this in here. Um, who do you think, uh, who do you know who has the gift of healings? I don't believe people have a gift of healing. It says that they have gifts of healings, which I, I believe mean that if for each person being healed, God gives the gifts of healings to that individual. That if they have the gift of healing, they better go into a hospital and empty it out. They better go wherever they can find sick people and pray for them. It says there has it been healing from people praying and laying on of hands. Yes, it's been by people saying we're asking God that God would move and touch and heal. I'm not saying God can't give the gifts of healings today, but they are in the plural, meaning gifts of healings being given for each individual being healed. All right, so good to have you guys here. Uh, I hope that you stay close to Christ. Um, we have a, a, a service in about an hour. I'll be teaching in about an hour and 20, 25 minutes. Um, we are looking at the dragon and Michael. We're going to be looking at Michael the archangel and the dragon, who they are, what this battle is about. Um, we're going to continue on in Revelation chapter 12, the second half there. A lot of good things to learn there. <clears throat> and this coming up week, we have Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. All right, stay close to Jesus. Keep loving him. Um, delight in the Lord who give you the desires of your heart. If you delight in the world, you're going to have the desires of the world. So delight in the Lord and walk in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. All right, God bless you guys. I'm out. We will see you later on.